Welcome back to our class on uh, Has American Christianity Failed by Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Today we'll be picking up the topic where we left off last week on this idea, fairly modern, very much American, on having a relationship with God or a relationship with Jesus. We'll talk a little bit today about where that comes from and some of the ways that that can mislead us away from a biblical understanding of what God has given to us. Let's begin with an invocation in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. So picking up in the text, we left off right on page 182, and we've, Wolfmuller's been leading us through what he perceives to be dangers with relationship theology. And of course, as is the case with um, all of our book studies, you know, you're free to agree or disagree, uh, so that's on the table. Obviously, we're bound to God's Word and God's Word alone. And then secondarily, if we want to be Lutherans and faithful, small, O Orthodox, small C Catholic Christians, we're going to bind ourselves to the Book of Concord um, as a secondary authority informed by the Scriptures and under the Scriptures. But then when it comes to these kinds of books, um, you're free to formulate your own opinions. Now, I, I tend to agree uh, in large with uh, Wolf Mueller in this section. He, uh, the section begins on page 180, and he begins with this subheading, it's not a relationship, it's a religion. We always hear the opposite, it's not a religion, it's a relationship, and I've seen that done very poorly and very abusively. Jesus came to destroy religion kind of language, and it's like, <laughs> okay, well, define religion now that you've got your you know, shocking title and your clickbait, uh, now define religion. Rarely is that done, if ever, well. So, what is the critique? The first critique over on the bottom of page 181 is that this language of relationship simply is absent when you go looking through the Bible. So, do one of these strip your preconceived notions and then go looking through the Bible or the New Testament. You're not going to find relationship talk. And so, I think Wolf Mueller's first critique is right on. This means we cannot find a biblical definition of the idea. So, we're left to what? A linguistic or rationalistic definition of the idea. And, of course, it's seldom, if ever, well-defined. Now, over on page 182, he speaks of the second danger with relationship theology. You can find that on the second full paragraph. And that is, when you describe things as having a relationship, then there's a lot of baggage that comes along with that. And Wolfmuller points out the introduction of the ideas of distant and distance and measurement. Because if you have a relationship between two distinct things, then you could talk about distance and measurement between them. And Wolfmuller draws us into the scriptural understanding of marriage to show how this can have a distorting effect on how we think rather than a clarifying effect. So, um, for example, here he says um, there is a danger, for example, in using the word relationship to describe the bond of marriage. The Bible teaches that husband and wife are not in a relationship with one another, but are quote-unquote, one flesh brought together and united by God. To ask a husband and wife, how's your relationship, is in fact to put a separation and distance between them. It is asking for a judgment, an assessment, a critique. That might be the key, just on a very ground level of the problem that Wolf Mueller's getting at here. A relationship, after all, he writes, could always get better. The union of husband and wife, on the other hand, remains the same in good times and in bad. Try asking a husband and wife these questions. How is your unity? How is your being one flesh? 
The questions don't make sense, and that is the joy and confidence of marriage. And, of course, then he's going to go on in the next paragraph, as we looked at last week. He said the same thing is true with Christ and his church. We've been made one. He is the head, we are the body, we are one together. And so asking the relationship between these two is odd, alien, and distorting. All right, bottom of 182, the third danger of relationship theology is that it understands our real problem in emotional terms rather than guilt and sin. So if you drop down to the very last sentence on page 182, Wolf Mueller writes, but instead of rightly distinguishing law and gospel and teaching that our real trouble is our sin and God's wrath over that sin, our troubles are reduced to our emotional disconnect from God and our emotional distance from the Almighty. If this is the real problem, the solution the Bible offers makes no sense. Why would the Son of God need to suffer and die in the agony of God's wrath if the problem is that we have a bad relationship with Him? And I think what you could see, too, in terms of American evangelicalism is if you have this idea that uh, the real problem is an emotional disconnect from God rather than sin that needs to be forgiven. If it's sin that needs to be forgiven, you're going to have a mode and means of that forgiveness to be communicated to us. You're going to have what we would call shorthand word and sacraments communicating that forgiveness to us but if the if it has if the paradigm has shifted away from my sin in the presence of a holy god to my disjointed disconnected relationship with god then you're not going to look to the sacraments which deliver forgiveness you're going to invent something that will draw you into an emotional feeling of closeness with god and that's precisely why the worship experience, quote-unquote, is designed the way it is. It's meant to address your feelings of being distant from God and bringing you into proximity and closeness with God. So the big swelling, um, you know, strains of the guitars and the laser and lights and smoke shows and the thundering uh, bass that's underneath your heartbeat, all of that is meant to pick you up and draw you into the presence of God, solving the problem of you not feeling close to him. Now you feel close to him. So you can see how this, how what's shifted is the entire paradigm away from God and sinners and God mediating that with Christ through his sacraments. Now it's God and me who's detached from him emotionally for which Christ isn't really needed, thus he goes away, and the sacraments that give forgiveness aren't really needed, so they go away, and what replaces it is a charismatic worship leader and thundering music that makes me feel as though I'm close to God. So you can see that that's why things are the way they are at a little bit deeper level of analysis. Okay, now where these two things get blurred, and, and maybe I don't know how much they get blurred, but where they get blurred, then you see Wolf Mueller's point in the great big font there on the top of 183. Relationship theology makes salvation the result of my commitment and continuing resolve to deepen the relationship. Because what happens, if this is the paradigm, then if you fall out of relationship with God, you fall out of salvation. If you stay in, relation, in close relationship with God, then you have salvation. Well, whose job is it to keep you in close relationship with God? Yours. And that, therein lies the problem. So now if you wed those two, or rather confuse those two ideas together of relationship theology and salvation, now you've got a real mess on your hands. And this, by the way, is, uh, now this was some years ago, but remember there's this rash of like young emergent church pastors and church musicians who were leaving the Christian faith. Uh, 
And they were all saying the same thing. I just don't feel it anymore. So I'm out. I got to do something different. If you take the time to an- analyze that, you're going to come to the same conclusions Wolfmuller has come to. Like, since when do your feelings have anything? They're saying, well, I once felt close to God, now I don't feel close to God. If faith is feeling close to God that, and I don't, then I don't have faith. And so the only honest thing to do would be to leave and go figure it out. So this theology is really, frankly, devastating and completely destructive if you take it seriously. All right, so then that constitutes the third danger of relationship theology presented by Wolfmuller. And then there's a fourth and final danger. Before we get there, let me just pause and see if you have any reflections, anything you'd like to add, or any questions. Fine. Please. Uh, in, in this context, then, I understand what you're saying, but Jesus also said, uh, from, from now on I call you friend. Mm-hmm. So the human would think, well, friend is a relationship. Uh, mm-hmm. So could you comment on that uh, verse in the context of being a friend? Yeah, yeah, and that's, um, yeah, that's fine. So we can just, we can kind of have that talk right now. Uh, I, think, I think that if you look at the roots, like where, where is the origin of this relationship talk? Because it's not in the Bible. Guess what? Surprise, it's not in the church fathers. It's not in the reformers, any of them. Not Luther, not Calvin, not anyone. So where does this relationship stuff come from? Ultimately, it develops as a reaction against what is seen as uh, formalism. So this is why it's almost always contrasted and juxtaposed with religion. And I think that this comes out of a critique of the Reformation, at the time of the Reformation, of the Roman Catholic Church. So the language where this would resonate for us as Lutherans is the Latin phrase ex opera operato, by the working of the work itself. And so in Roman Catholic theology in the medieval period, I mean, it still remains formally the same today. It's just who knows if that's the common understanding of the folks. On a formal level, it remains the same. And that is that you can pay for an indulgence, or you can pay for a sacrifice of the mass, and whether you believe or not, whether you have any relationship to God or not, that transaction is effective. By the way, in an earlier period, we see the minor prophets in the Old Testament scriptures lamenting the same kind of thing. That's where much of this scriptural language comes from. It's like sacrifice you did not desire. I mean, that's a head scratcher at first because you go, well, he's the one that instituted sacrifice. So what do you mean sacrifice you do not desire? Well, the spiritual problem they have right going on at that time in uh, the history of Israel before their demise and Judah before their captivity is they've got this idea of as long as I offer the sacrifices to Yahweh then I've checked those boxes off and I can go do whatever I want and that's ex opera operato by the working of the work itself as long as I offer the sacrifice Yahweh's happy he's got to bless me and I can go off and live as if I was a servant of Satan so the minor prophets are calling this out left and right, left and right. A parallel thing happens toward the end of the Reformation where the Roman Catholic system is based much the same. It's just this idea of like, hey, if you do your Hail Marys, it doesn't matter if your heart's in it or not. You've paid your debt. If you buy the indulgence, it doesn't matter if you're in a state of grace or not. Your money went into the, you know, the coin in the coffer rings a soul from Purgatory Springs. And so you, it went in and off they went, and it's all a transaction that can be done completely apart from faith. And so you find this criticism, particularly amongst later radical reformers and those, their forebears down the line, come, trying to combat that by saying, we don't need religion as defined by these external heartless acts, we need a relationship, which is super attractive if you've seen the 
the problems and the pitfalls of this ex opera operato, just going through the motions, transactional, heart not in it, quote unquote religion. Okay, but what do we so often see in the history of the church? That what develops as a solution to an error is taken to such an extreme that it's not the truth, it's just the opposite error. And so we're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's no longer sacraments. It's no longer church. It's no longer the pastoral office. It's no longer Christ crucified. All, All of that stuff is religious and it's to be done away with. Now it's just me and Jesus. Jesus talking directly into my heart, me talking directly to Jesus. And this takes on a variety of forms. The way it comes into the Lutheran tradition is via a movement called pietism. Piety, good. Pietism, bad. But even then we have to be careful because pietism has some good and redeeming qualities. Like this antithesis to formalism and ex opera operato. But where pietism and other movements, particularly then to American, you know, particular to American Christianity, where these go awry is when they throw the baby out with the bathwater and it just becomes me and God and what is at the center is my relationship with him. You see? So here we have the opposite of one error is just the opposite error, not the truth. The truth is in the middle. And Wolf Mueller, in talking uh, over and against the error of uh, this relationship theology, is trying to draw us back into the center. Now, if we were to fall into formalism, then that's where it would be very fitting for us to quote Jesus saying to his disciples, um, you are my friends, okay? or I I, um, the Father and I will come and make our home within you. And that kind of uh, language that I would think of more in terms of like English words of unity. In fact, the theological phrase there is mystical union. That's the union of uh, God in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit joining himself with us. It's the language of mystical union. So I would talk in terms of union. And then in terms of because there's that union, there are such things as uh, friendship. There are such things as sonship. There are such things as the, uh, the relationship between a slave and master. There is Christ as bridegroom and we, the church, as bride. Okay. So that would be the way that would be the proper way to combat formalism and ex opera operato would be quoting those verses. Where we are today is we've the pendulum has swung so far over into this relational theology it's just an error and we need to combat that by pointing out the fact that the Bible doesn't talk that way, the church doesn't talk that way, and talking that way leads to, as Wolfmuller has it, at least four major dangers that we should be aware of. The point being that we're steered back into the middle, not falling into the ditch on either side. Does that help answer, Barry? All right, very good. Please. So I completely agree with that assessment of uh, relationships and the problem with that. Um, But dovetailing with what you were saying at the end, just Mm -hmm. underscoring the obvious, there is great joy to be had in understanding that God does know us personally. Mm -hmm. And there's great joy to uh, to be had as we understand the full impact of what that means. I'm thinking of your study on First uh, John uh, yeah. on Monday, mm-hmm. realizing that there he he is the life of the cosmos. Mm-hmm. We are united with him, mm-hmm. and once you begin to understand that, it's like. Whoa. So yeah. It, yeah. we sometimes tend to communicate this in a way that says, "Oh, you know, the emotional stuff that's bad. You shouldn't have any feelings uh, about God. <laughs> Just do these acts or read these doctrines," uh-huh. and that's not it either. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah, exactly. And we certainly don't want to somehow like, 
Okay, there is definitely a problem with emotionalism and letting feelings govern everything. But it's just the opposite error if we say feelings have no part and are forbidden and or you should be suspicious of <laughs> So a lot of this, a lot of this, I mean, if this is all alien to you, uh, this is the first time you've thought about it, or I, I mean, maybe particularly thinking of those people online that might be joining us, uh, there are a couple of ways to think about this that'll probably put the light bulb on for you. And that is... Think of how God interacts with his saints throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. There's never this touchy-feely, schmarmy... I mean, there's not a single account of Abraham being like, so I was walking in my garden and God started telling me secrets that he didn't tell anybody else. It just never happens that way. And in fact, when there are encounters with God, usually the first thing that has to be said is, do not be afraid. Not, sup, God? How you doing, buddy? No, I, which is like the American way of talking. I mean, I, you hear this language all the time, like, God and I were just hanging out. What? <laughs> I mean, imagine Moses saying that. God and I were just hanging out. You just never see it in the Old Testament. And I think that also one, one of the things, like this is where um, we kind of embarrass ourselves. If we knew and prayed the Psalms, this wouldn't even be an issue. Because when you go into the Psalms and pray the Psalms. There's not a single one that's like, Lord Jesus, I feel distant from you. Draw near to me and fill me with your warmth. You know, give me a big cosmic hug. Uh, There's just, that's not there. If it's not part of the biblical piety, it's probably not part of any piety we want anything to do with. Uh, What you find actually in the Psalms... uh, (laughs) is an amazing transformation that we all are undergoing insofar as we use them as to learning what even we should be praying for. See, the assumption is that we think we know. (laughs) What arrogance! Uh, It is the Psalms that teach us and teach us contrary. It's like, well, I would never pray that. Well, guess who's wrong? (laughs) It's not the scriptures. It's not the Psalm that's wrong. It's us, it's our heart, it's our piety that is wrong. And so there's this beautiful sense in which, okay, by way of crit- criticism, if, you're, if we are familiar with the Psalms, we wouldn't be having this kind of smarmy, emotional uh, language in our, in our prayer life or at the heart of our spirituality. But now, to put it positively and by way of encouragement, there's nothing better you can do for your quote-unquote spirituality than beginning to pray the Psalms. So they've got these wonderful little Bible apps, and they save your place. So you just download one of the easy ones, and like you say, I'm going to read Psalm 1. And it's, what's so great about it is you've got your phone by your bed, of course. We all do, because your alarm's going to go off. So even if you forget and you're laying in bed, pick up your phone, pray the psalm. By the way, out loud is the best, as long as you're not going to freak your spouse out. Um, but out loud is the best if you can do it. And then um, when you wake up in the morning, guess what's there? The psalm you left on, yeah. And, and so you just go to the next psalm. So that morning and evening you're doing this. Uh, you're going to pray through the Psalms quickly. And if you get to a long one, like Psalm 119, you just break it up. That's fine. Uh, Just break it up. But as you become acquainted with the Psalms, what you realize, a lot of what they're designed to do is transform us so that we're praying the way God would have us pray. And And so that we're starting to care about the things we should actually care about, not about the things that we by nature care about. It's one of the beautiful and humbling things about the Psalms. So, yeah, I would, in some sense, I would even say, hey, there's the antidote to both formalism and the idea of ex opera operato and this just kind of crass mechanical religion. And on the other side, this emotional relationship connection with God that's subject to what I had for dinner the night before or how my day went, right? Where it's suddenly like, God, why are you not near me? I got a, my minivan got a flat tire and the pizza came and they forgot my sausage on it. You know, like, what, what's happening? I feel emotionally disconnected from, you know. Okay, so we're going to stay away from these two errors and the Psalms are like the perfect medicine for that. Anything else? Yeah, oh, one second. We want to get you a microphone. 
let's see. Uh, on the subject of the Psalms, um, the contemporary hymns, the songs that are sung, often I think, how is that an improvement on mm-hmm. the Psalms? Um, I mean, if it's simple and, and it's more like what you're used to hearing, that's and it's accessible, I understand that, but let's say then <clears throat> we agree that the Psalms are better mm-hmm. to pray and to sing and to try to put to music. What then when somebody chooses to sing the Psalms to a more contemporary form or just completely improvisationally? I mean, that's one of the things about the Bible. There's, no, there's not a written note of music. I mean, it didn't mm-hmm. come about until Guido, you know, in the thousand years later. So, um, yeah. What, what, what are, that's kind of, is it arbitrary? I mean, the form that it takes, that is, if we say, yes, sing the Psalms, but how do we sing them? Sure. I don't know if you could. Well, I can do it very briefly. Obviously, this subject and the idea of the interrelationship between music and worship is a vast one. And it's one we've covered in this class before in various ways. But I would say that in one sense, yes, God leaves our conscience free. And so that puts it into the realm that we would call an adiaphora. That's the Latin phrase for things um, that God has not commanded or forbidden. But that doesn't mean that we turn off our brains just because it's like, okay, God hasn't commanded or forbidden, so anything goes. I mean, if you, if you apply that universally to your life, you'll be in my office by the end of the day because you're going to make a disaster out of everything. If you just go, well, God's left it free, so I guess I'm free to do it, you know, right? I mean, imagine the ways in which you might talk to your spouse because God hasn't said you can't. Uh, so you'd make a disaster of, every, of everything. All right, so what is one of the governing principles? As soon as we, as soon as we identify something as audiophora, God hasn't commanded it or forbidden it. Instead of turning our brains off and saying, well, it must be okay, we need to turn our brains on and say, in what ways is this wise and prudent and helpful, and in what ways isn't it? So declaring something to be audiophora doesn't end the conversation. It's the beginning of the conversation. And one of the things that we really need to pay attention to in our culture, particular to um, the tunes we use, is where do those tunes come from and where do they connect us mentally? Okay. So if you, if you put um, the liturgy to Metallica, that's going to put a lot of our minds in a very different place than humility and repentance and receiving the grace and mercy of an eternal, everlasting God. Okay? So, but, but the Bible doesn't for, forbid it. So who are you to be so legalistic? No, the Bible doesn't forbid it, but that doesn't mean it's prudent or intelligent or wise for us to do. So let's have a conversation about that. And much of what conservative Christianity, I think even larger than Lutheranism, but I know Lutheranism very well, what we've fallen into is this idea of like, well, that music, maybe just think of the contemporary big box church style. There's nothing wrong with it. Well, one thing you need to keep in mind is that that style is associated with churches that don't confess what we confess and don't think what we think. And in fact, their music is operating in a very different way. Our music is underpinning words that confess what God has taught us and that give him thanks for, the, for his son and the word and sacraments that he give us. And so the music has come to work harmoniously with that, whereas the music that largely passes for contemporary Christian worship is born out of Baptistic theology and carries with it, uh, it's, it's been formed out of Baptistic theology because it serves that theology. It's meant to press you up into closer relationship with God. So no, it's not as simple as just taking Lutheran words or uh, words from the 11th century or words from the 7th or 4th centuries and just putting them into the poppy, snappy, Baptistic, non-denominational beats, you're going to have you're going to have a clash between two theologies. And in fact, you do. The history of the quote-unquote worship wars in the Lutheran church is the story of beginning with the words 
that we all have and share, trying to add in baptistic music hidden from us through self-deceit by calling it contemporary, but baptistic tunes, and wedding Lutheran words with baptistic tunes until guess what has to give and ultimately does. The word or the tune? The word gives. And the tune changes and the tune takes over. Um, so powerful is that music and that style. So uh, that's the best I can do in a short time frame to say, hey, we need to have a very careful conversation before we just say, hey, it's out there. It's great. Yeah. Please. And just to throw this in, um, in relating to these folks, oftentimes, uh, uh, maybe they will say, oh, I say you're a Christian. Uh, but do you have a relationship Yes, right, exactly. Uh, do you have, you're a Christian, that's fine, but you, you, do you have a relationship yet? Yeah. And the next thing that stems, I think, connected from that, they'll often talk about, well, God talked to me last night, and he told me right. that I should do this or that and so on. And then this morning, he woke me up again, and he said, blank, blank, blank. I mean, that really throws me where in the world they get this stuff, and they seem to be sincere about this. Mm-hmm. Like, are they hallucinating or what you think? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I, I think that people mistake their inner monologue and deify their own thoughts and proclaim it to be the Word of God. Um, even though, if you, if you again compare that to anything you see in the Bible or the history of the church, it just doesn't work that way. When the, when the saints hear the word of God, there's a very different reaction. When the saints come into the tangible presence of God, there's a very different reaction, biblically and throughout the history of the church, than we're seeing, by the way, only in the last couple hundred years. I mean, maybe that's even giving it more credit than it's due, probably more like the last 150 years, um, where there's this new thing of like, hey, I was just talking with God. It's like, oh, so I, know, I talked with God last night. Oh, so I know what you're doing this morning, laundering your underpants, right? Because that's, uh, you were in the presence of the Almighty, you were flat on your face, and he had to say to you what? Do not fear. Um, you know, I mean, think of, think of St. John's encounter with God. Think of St. John's encounter with Jesus in the early chapter of Revelation, in the early chapters of Revelation. He's on his face. He's not moving. Christ has to come over and lift him up with his hand and Christ speaks to him and there's such fear and trembling and awe and majesty if somebody's going to recount that kind of experience with God it's like all right well tell me more Um, but if someone's going to be like you know God just put this on my heart or God and I were having a chit chat last night over a Mai Tai it's like well pardon me if I kind of like don't think so yeah and then, yeah, you're right, Neil, because you kind of, like, this whole thing, like, it's very odd, because it's happened to me where I'm wearing my black collar and, like, out on a pastoral call, and I'll get, and, and I just try, I try to take these people as well-meaning, well-intentioned, but yeah, the woman came running up to me, do you have a relationship with Jesus? Like, no, I chose to get dressed up like this, <laughs> you know? I mean, and there, and there too, is the Lutheran critique, I mean, if if you mean is Jesus like indistinguishable from, imagi- from my imaginary friends that I had when I was a kid, it's like, no, I don't have a relationship with Jesus. Not like that. Nor do I want one. Nor does he want one. Otherwise, he would have taught us in his word that that's how it's supposed to be. Um, so if we're going to try to baptize the language of a relationship, it's like, absolutely, I have a relationship with Jesus. I come into his presence every single Lord's Day to hear the living voice of the risen Christ spoken into my ears, rattling the bones in my ears and entering my mind and heart. I have a relationship with Jesus by coming to his table where he says, for you, requiring my heart to believe and placing his very body and blood into my lips for the forgiveness of my sins that I might be one with him. So there's my relationship with Jesus. I cry out to him morning and night as the psalmists do. There's my relationship with Jesus. But that's not anything that you mean by relationship with Jesus. So there's the rub. Yeah. I don't mean to be, you know, overly picking on people because I understand that these, these are people with good hearts and good intentions. It's just the way they've been taught. Uh, but um, it serves us to, via Wolfmuller, 
get dragged back into the scriptures and back into the history of the church where so much of this quote-unquote spirituality of today just simply it does not exist. Any other thoughts, questions, comments before we wrap up this section? We're okay? All right. So did we get to the... F- no, we didn't get to the fourth yet. Uh, page 183. We'll try to move fairly quickly here, but um, this one I really resonated with too. Uh, fourth, um, so page 183, second full paragraph from the bottom. Fourth, relationship theology expects things of God that he never promised. It expects God to talk back to us in prayer and direct our lives through direct revelation. It expects we will feel moved, touched, led by God to do certain things. And I think here's the, here's the nasty part. Um, so if you believe this and you're waiting for God, but you just like have a lot of integrity and psychological strength and it never happens, then what does that mean? God must not love you. Yeah, I, I mean, who's going to work that out for you? Um, the devil's going to be like, yep, he sure doesn't, because you don't feel him. He's not walking with you, talking with you. You must be out. And that is that is actually a common experience of people who come out of Pentecostalism. And Everybody else was talking in tongues. It came to be my turn, so I made the sounds. But I knew it wasn't God. And so I realized that I must not be a Christian. Or I am a Christian and they must, this theology must not be right. So, yeah, we're, this relationship theology ultimately expects things of God that he never promised. Constantly, and this idea, like, we constantly have to hear his voice or feel moved or feel touched or feel led. And if we didn't, that immediately throws us into a spiritual turmoil. He continues, fourth line down, relationship theology teaches us to listen in prayer and expect, even demand, that God will talk back to us. This is a subtle and pious-looking denial of the sufficiency of God's word. As if we were saying, God, your word might be enough for everyone else, but I need something more. I need you to talk directly to me. Or show me a sign. And yeah, no, that's the other thing that usually accompanies this. The Lord has never promised any of these things. He never promised feelings, greater insight, or a personalized revelation. He gives us his law and promises and tells us that these are, in fact, sufficient for our Christian life. And how refreshing that is. How refreshing that is to realize that, I mean, I think I had this realization somewhere right around adolescence that, like, hey, wait, these are my feelings, not God's feelings. God, does it, God and I are distinct in that respect, so I may be feeling down or depressed or despairing or whatever the case may be, or excited or elated or, or happy. God's completely independent from my own emotions. He's got his own gig going on. And he's going to speak to me via his word and via his sacraments, and that's going to infor- inform my heart and mind. But that, that's such a great comfort as we grow older in life because we realize we're anything but stable. We're constantly in flux, going back and forth. But if we've lost and got rid of this quote-unquote relationship theology that's so dependent upon our feelings and our perceptions, we can realize that God is God, He's unmoved, He's unchanged, and now He's my rock. I may be moving all over, He's not. He's steadfast, He's true, He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what, what great comfort there is. So when I walk in on a Sunday morning and I'm just in a bad mood... I know that God's still going to be good to me and give me his word and sacrament. It's not dependent upon me somehow getting out of this bad mood and floating up in my heart to receive his presence. So just beautiful, freeing. um, I can come as I am and be ministered to by Christ in the divine service. I think this is where some of this false doctrine stuff comes from. Whereas uh, they will say, well, but God spoke to me this way. And he didn't say it to me this way. I, 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 this is what God tells me when you talk about perhaps a, what we would refer to as doctrine or yeah. scripture. So it's above scripture. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Scripture is second. Scripture is over here. Yeah. But I spoke to God, and that's really what's on top. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah. And God told me I should go to this to this church, even though it's filled with all kinds of false teaching and false practice, and not that church which is filled with all the things that God wants. God told me to do that. Really? I mean, in a similar vein, just more obvious, God told me, God laid it on my heart that I should in fact divorce my wife and marry my mistress. And this is frequently, I mean, in these circumstances where the person, you know, is, is under this idea of I'm going to retain my relationship with God and uh, I'm going to retain my status with the church. This is the kind of thing that's frequently said to pastors. Pastor, I just want you to know that we're getting a divorce. Oh, that's terrible. Why didn't you come to me earlier that we could have addressed these things? And what are the circumstances that are causing you to get a divorce? Well, God has revealed to me that my wife is uh, the wrong person. I shouldn't have married her. I'm going to marry this other woman. The pastor's in his ears, you know, just danger, 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 Will Robinson. Yeah, this this is a big problem. But this is where this theology leads. Because if God's telling you, who is anyone to tell you otherwise? And if God's been confused with the desires of your heart, who's to tell you otherwise? Not even the scriptures themselves could tell you. And that is, in fact, uh, that root actually does trace back to the time of the Reformation, some of the radical reformers who said, um, God doesn't speak to us in the word, and they misused and abused, tore out of context a scripture to prove this, and then reinterpreted it completely contrary to what the scripture itself says. The, The letter is dead, but the spirit is alive. That is, the scripture is dead, that's for other people, Um, Not me. The Holy Spirit talks to me directly and tells me all the things that happen to coincide with exactly what I want. So you can see where this comes from and where it goes. So are are we to conclude that it's wrong for us, let's say in our church body here, that we're asked to volunteer to do something? I say, well, I'll go and pray about that. Mm -hmm. That sounds like I should not say that. I should... I should say, well, uh, let me uh, consider my vocational commitments and abilities. Yeah, exactly. Stay away from saying I'm going to pray about that with the expectation that God's going to talk to me with an answer. Well, that's the key. So I would definitely say pray about it. Um, But what are you praying for and what are you looking for? There's this slogan that drives me up a wall. It's just a personal pet peeve, but it's used in Lutheran circles all the time. I'm going to prayerfully consider this. It's like, it's just become a byword because it's so frequently tossed around. It's so cliche, you know. I have fun with my brothers who prayerfully consider everything. What are you prayerfully considering? Going to get a drink from the drinking fountain. Uh, it's like this overly pious, which is actually nonsense and meant to sound pious. When And God can call us to multiple good things, and then he gives us freedom of choice. So God could call you to the goodness of your vocation at home, but then also through the people in the church could call you to serve in a volunteer role. And it's, your job is not to discern which is actually God calling. Your job is to say, oh, God has given me the freedom to serve in this way and now also in that. Can I do this? Is this, is this in keeping with good stewardship? Um, is this something I can bear and do? It would be wonderful if I could. So when we pray, we're praying that God would give us discernment in terms of, uh, and, and wisdom, but that taking the form of stewardship, use of our resources, use of our gifts, um, and, the, and that God would bring to mind our various vocational duties and the balance so we'd be circumspect in an answer we're giving and that kind of thing. But yeah, we don't pray, hey, God, show me the way. You know, I, this, is, this is the kind of paganism that's actually just inborn into us by nature. I can remember being, in like, being like seven years old and like, you know, when you're seven, these are the deep things you're thinking about and, you know, like, it's like, okay, and I'm sitting there, it's like, okay, should I go in and get a popsicle or not? What does God want? Well, if I, if I make it, I'm going to go in and get a popsicle because that was his will. And if I miss it, I'm not going to go get a popsicle. And then I thought, well, the chances aren't very good that I'm going to make it. I'm going to reverse that. I'm going to reverse that. So if I miss it, I'll go in and get a popsicle. Lo and behold, I missed it. I needed to go in and get a popsicle. God had spoken. 
I mean, this is the kind of, like, all we're doing is the adult version of this. And it's, it's complete rubbish. Where you really want it, where, I mean, no offense, but where you really will see this is pastors. We're terrible at this. Because we, we want to sound so much pi- more pious and holy than your average Christian. So just listen for pastors and you'll get nauseated. Uh, but we talk all the time about this, particularly when God gives a pastor two different pastoral calls. And his job is to discern the one that God wants him to actually be at. And he tells his congregation this. Hogwash. God has already, in his graciousness, said, I'd I'd be happy to have you serve here or here. You don't get to secretly discern which one. Guess what? I've already made it obvious. You've got two call documents where I'm calling you through the people. You don't have to discern if it's my will or not. What you need to do is take stock of the two congregations, take stock of your resources and, and all other considerations, and figure out where you would like to serve and where you think you could serve most profitably for the sake of Christ and his church. That's it. But to realize that Christ has left you beautifully, blessedly free, and to stop with the whole pious facade like you're in the back of your office rattling the bones and doing the tea leaves, trying to figure out if you're supposed to go to, oh, lo and behold, am I supposed to stay here in the middle of Nebraska or go to Hawaii? Gee, what's God's will going to be? You know, it's just, pardon me, pastors are the worst when it comes to all of this. Uh, so, Barry, your point's very apropos that we, um, we are all governed by the word of God. That's it. That's sufficient. And then in our prayers, we're acting that we would rightly see and understand God's word, that we would rightly perceive our circumstances, that he would give us wisdom, that he would walk with us, that he would bless us whatever decision we make, that he would bless his church and the people involved with whatever decision. These are the ways in which we want to pray. And, then, and in that sense, prayerfully consider is fine, right? Um, even though it's just overused. Okay, hopefully that answered your question. God leaves us like shockingly, stunningly free for these really super important decisions in our life, like where you're going to go to school or who you're going to marry or what you're going to study or what you're going to be or what career path you're going to take. And we're always like quivering and looking for God to like shine a light exactly where he wants us to go. But God's light is so much better than that. He's like, hey, whichever you choose is fine with me and I'm going to back you up no matter what. Whatever's going to happen to you, even if you look and say, well, that was the wrong decision. That was a disaster. No, that was the right decision. And this is exactly what I have in store for you and exactly what I desired for you. I mean, God's ways are just infinitely larger than ours. He leaves us free. But that freedom is almost in a sense, when you analyze it from God's vantage point, he's infinite. He's all knowing. So that freedom, which is a true freedom to us, is like, a, no surprise to God, and B, nothing he didn't anticipate or already have worked out for the good of those who love him. So it requires both faith and humility, faith in the part that God's going to back me up no matter what, and humility in the fact that even if like, I made a choice and it, by all appearances it, it was a disaster and the wrong choice, to actually have the humility and say, no, that's, that has nothing to do with anything. God's still in control, and God's got me, and it's fine. So anyway, those are some reflections. But yeah, we, we, as, uh, we need to regain Sola Scriptura. This is, an, uh, this is an aspect of what Sola Scriptura is all about. God leaves us free in many ways. All right, are we okay to go a little further? So um, I don't want to spend a lot of time here because I've made a few comments already. But if you look at page 184, now we turn to the idea of piety. And piety here defined by Wolfmuller in the first line under a biblical picture of piety. Piety is the way our doctrine looks when it's lived out in our lives. That's a pretty good working definition. So if you have Christians that are living very legalistic lives, that probably is coming from their doctrine. On the other hand, if you have Christians living very lawless lives, that's also probably coming from their doctrine. So that's something to be aware of. But piety is the shape of our Christian life. That's how Wolfmuller's defining and using it. 
Okay, and here he's he's charitable. He says that uh, our, the piety of American Christianity frequently looks biblical, and maybe in some ways is. As you get down to the last line, he gets into his critique a little bit. Biblical piety centers around God's word and sacraments, lives in repentance and faith, and results in comfort and love. Next paragraph, the piety of American Christianity enters on the quote-unquote personal relationship with Jesus, quote-unquote quiet time, and quote-unquote prayer time. Even corporate worship in American Christianity is an individual experience, me and God. Biblical piety, in contrast, centers on the corporate worship of the local congregation. And it's true, and that, is, that even goes back to the Old Testament, whether you're in the period of the synagogues or whether you're in the period of the temple, whether you're in the period of the tabernacle. Uh, worship is a communal, congregational activity. I mean, is, is Wolf Miller here critiquing that we set aside a time in the morning and evening to pray or read the Bible? No, I don't think that that's what he's doing. I think he's critiquing where this kind of individualism and this kind of piety comes to eclipse what God gives to us corporately on Sunday morning, the heart and substance of which is, as he says, uh, word and sacrament. And there, again, we're talking about the preaching of his word preaching of the, the three scripture texts, Old Testament, second reading, and gospel, and then the articulation of those through the sermon, and then the second service of the sacrament, namely the distribution of the Lord's body and blood to sinners for the forgiveness of sins. That's where, that's where the heart and center is, biblically speaking. So yeah, he just goes on to kind of detail this. The Old Testament, it's all centered on the tabernacle and temple. The New Testament, it's on the Word and Lord's Supper. If we uh, jump over to 186, I'll pause to get your reflections, but I don't want to spend too much time here because I think it's ground we've covered. If you go over to 186, I'll just kind of summarize this little subsection. Very bottom paragraph written there. In the end, the piety shaped by relationship theology results in the roller coaster of pride and despair. I'm feeling really good, really close to God. God must love me. I must be his unique vessel here to do his will. I'm feeling really down. I'm feeling really depressed. Nothing's going right. My pet bit me. My spouse ate the last donut. God must hate me. Um... Yeah, so it's this roller coaster of emotions is the roller coaster of your relationship with God. I think that that's Wolf Mueller's point. He continues, God never promised that we would feel forgiven. He promises that we are forgiven. You know, and that's the again, that's the beautiful objectivity of word and sacraments. You can go into the you can go into the service, maybe you're feeling miserable cuz life is really hard on you. You hear the words and promises of God and you leave feeling miserable because life is really hard on you. But it doesn't change the fact that God says what he says and it's true. And your faith has been strengthened by that word and promise and you cling to that word and promise even if there's no emotional change. It's the beauty and strength of God's word and word and sacrament being outside of us, extra nos. So again, God never promise that we would feel forgiven. He promises that we are forgiven. He never promised that we would feel saved. He promises that we are saved, even if we don't feel like it. He never promised that we would feel close to him. He promised never to leave us or forsake us. But in the beautiful irony of our Christian piety, the feelings of comfort, confidence, and the boldness of faith come from the certainty of these promises. All right, so that's how Wolf Mueller ties these together in the way of piety and contrasting a piety centered on the external objective word and sacraments of God for you versus the internal relational how are you feeling, what's your spiritual mood mishmash. 
Any thoughts or questions you have there on that section? All right, we've got three minutes left. I'm going to put the pedal to the metal here. Love begun, never done, page 187. And I want to summarize what he says up here in the beginning. So, um, love begun. That is to say, as Christians, are we renewed by the Holy Spirit? The answer is going to be yes. The next question. Are we renewed in such a way that we can fulfill the law perfectly? No. Okay, so there. Love begun, renewal, yes, but never done. Perfection, no. And that's really the theme and thesis of this. Uh, In some of the holiness bodies, here we're talking not really mainstream, non-denominationalism, quote-unquote. We're talking about some of the main lines and holiness bodies that are spin-offs, they actually believe that you can reach a stage of perfection. I I think in all my ministry, I've never actually sat face-to-face with somebody who believed this. Um, I suppose if you did, you'd say, well, the fact that you believe this is indicative of your ongoing sin because this is a false belief. (laughs) Uh, So, Anyway, for what it's worth, and if that is in your background, you may want to zoom in on this chapter, uh, because here Wolfmuller treats it. If we jump over to 188, here he talks about a life of repentance, and he's got some very good things here. Um, we never outgrow repentance. That's his first line, and that's really the thesis of the whole thing, is up until the day we die, we are repenting, because the old man and the sinful flesh cling to us until the day we die. In fact, that's how death has been transformed. It's the final circumcision or cutting off of that fleshly sinful man that exists within us. So we never outgrow repentance. In fact, if you, if you think you're getting so holy as to need to repent less and less, you're probably actually going backwards. If you look at someone like St. Paul as he progressed, more and more did he see his own sin clearly and God's grace clearly. And so there's this perception, a perceptual shift from thinking himself maybe lesser of a sinner to an even greater sinner. That parallels our perceptual shift, even if objectively we are becoming less, you know, we're committing less outright sins. Uh, The perception is, no, one sin is sufficient. The presence of the sinful nature is sufficient that we would simply spend our whole lives in repentance. All right, so um, 189. Kind of wish we could finish this, but maybe we won't. Maybe we will. (laughs) Let's just be done with it. Next, fresh chapter next week. So let let me conclude here where under the subheading, Love only begun. If you look at that quotation from the Augsburg Confession, the two indented paragraphs, go to the second one. And here we read, uh, this is from Apology, Article 5, the defense of the Augsburg Confession. These things cannot happen until we have been justified through faith and regenerated. We receive the Holy Spirit. First, because the law cannot be kept without Christ. Likewise, the law cannot be kept without the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is received through faith, as Paul declares in Galatians 3.14, quote, that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith, end quote. Also remember, how can the human heart love God while it knows that He is terribly angry and is oppressing us with earthly and endless distress? The law always accuses us. It always shows that God is angry. God is not loved until we receive mercy through faith. Not until then does he become someone we can love. So Christ crucified in the proclamation of God's love for us in Christ Jesus and the free forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus, only then can the human heart be converted to love God. But there's a manifest change. A person goes from not loving God to loving God. Now, does he love God perfectly? As soon as you become a Christian, can you go, first commandment accomplished? No. So it's love begun, not done. And we're, so we're not going to fall into either ditch of saying, now that we're Christian, we fulfill the law perfectly. That doesn't happen. That's one ditch. But the other ditch is to say, well, now that we're Christian, nothing has changed. 
just we believe in Jesus. That's also false. The truth is right down in the middle. Love has been begun because, as, as John says, we love because he first loved us. We do, in fact, love. We have a beginning of love. We have a beginning of love for God and neighbor. We have a beginning of the fulfillment of the law. And may it increase in us more and more, we simply recognize that this side of heaven, it won't come to perfection. Make sense? That's as good a way as any to close out this chapter. Uh, Next week, chapter 9, Wrestling with God, we're going to talk more about prayer, and prayer is suffering. And uh, we are fairly rapidly, well, I just turned 12 there for a minute, uh, getting to the end of this text. So one of the things that I will be working on presenting to you is a list of books that we might read next. I've spent a long time on this book. Usually I don't spend that much time. Uh, But why I've done so is because it's good to go back to the foundations. It's good to go back to the very basics. And so that's why I've spent so much time here. And the next book, I promise, we don't have to spend nearly as much time. But if you have any recommendations for that list that you'd like me to consider and possibly include, let me know. And I'd be happy to take a look. In the past, we've kind of focused on some core Lutheran texts, but we've also jumped out to things contemporary and things kind of on the periphery as well. So let me know if something's of interest, and we'll throw it in the mix. The Lord be with you.